0: Usually, we have readings from the Bible and also we, um, not the Bible, we call it, or uh, the canon and not the canon or something like that. Uh, Today, I I have a bunch of readings and they're all sort of interspersed through what I'm saying. Um, Also, the Bible passage for today is really, it's a lot of names, a lot of names that I don't know how to say, so I'm not going to subject anybody else to saying them. Uh, So I'm just sort of going to. Intersperse all the readings throughout my um, entire discussion. So, God. we um, we've been doing this thing called the narrative lectionary, which is if you guys know what the lectionary is, the lectionary is like a calendar that that people often use, churches use to pick what verses that they talk about from the Bible. The idea is that you like kind of over three years go through this whole thing. Um, we're not super like formal about things like that, and so uh, we never really used it, um, partly because I hated it and I found it difficult to deal with. Uh, Neil found this other lectionary called the narrative lectionary that we, we saw that these alternative group of preachers were using where um, they're thinking about the Bible as a story, right, narrative, and sort of going through the entire entirety of the of Bible. The way that you might sort of look at um, a story and how it changes instead of focusing on some of the minutiae in there. And uh, today's passage fell upon uh, the book of Jeremiah, who is this prophet. Uh, he was this prophet during a time where Israel is split into two kingdoms. There's a north kingdom, and a northern and a southern kingdom. Um, there are these kings that they have who often are terrible, and uh, all the foreign powers around them are starting to sp- basically conquer, uh, take them over, Um, rule over them. And so this is a story that we find ourselves in Jeremiah. Um, God comes to Jeremiah as God comes to prophets and tells Jeremiah, write down this stuff on a scroll. It's very important. I want you to write this stuff down so that the people uh, can hear what I have to say and change their ways, which is often the case. Uh, And so Jeremiah takes this scroll. He writes it down. He's barred from the temple for being... uh, a rabble rouser, and so he's not allowed to go. So he gives it to his secretary. Secretary takes it, reads the scroll. The king hears about the scroll, and he says, "All right, bring the scroll to me. I want to hear what this scroll has to say." Uh, the king Jehoiakim, and so you get this picture that I'm about to read for you of King Jehoiakim in, in, in the temple or in his palace, in a room. It's winter time. Uh, he's got this great fire in front of him. He's sitting there. Um, hearing uh, someone read the scroll out loud to him. So it says, as Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a penknife and throw them into the fire in the Brazier. Is that the right word? Yeah, that felt weird for me to say out loud. I apologize. <laughs> um, That's a different spelling. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the Brazier. Apologies, again. Uh, Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was alarmed, nor did they tear their garments. Even when Elnathan and Deliah and Jema- Jem- Jemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, and Sariah, son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, son of Abdiel, to arrest the secretary Baruch and the prophet Jeremiah. But the Lord hid them. I apologize, I totally butchered so many elements of that reading. But you get the picture here, right? The king is sitting in this room, the scroll is being read to him, uh, and as it's being read, he takes it and he cuts off these pieces, um, and he's throwing them into the fire until the whole scroll is burned. The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, uh, as we started from the beginning, continues to bring into some focus this picture of this strange character that is called God in the text. Uh, And one of the really interesting elements... That seems relevant for us today, I think, is God's relationship, this character, God's relationship to political power and the people who wield this political power. I forgot how long ago, maybe like nine days ago, on that Thursday after the election, we held a prayer visual, uh, prayer meeting at, in conjunction with another church um, who are friends with us. And one of the pastors there who was organizing uh, this meeting with us chose this passage from 1 Samuel that I thought was really strange when I first heard it, right? It's a story where the Israelites, uh, back in those days, they had no king. So you start complaining to God and begging God, give us a king, we want a king. And to this response, God laments, he says, uh, they have rejected me from being king over them, just they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. And after this, uh, God lists to the people, the Israelites, all the ways that having a king uh, would be terrible for them. That the king would, uh, a human ruler, as it were, would uh, take their sons to war, take the best of their fields, their flocks, all for the king's own purposes. And yet they respond, No, we are determined to have a king over us, so that we may also be like other nations, and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so God, for whatever reason, grants them this king. And so goes a chain of events for shitty king after shitty king comes. Uh, Exile, enslavement, like I mentioned, uh, from prophets like Isaiah to Jeremiah and all beyond. And all the while, God, uh, the central character of this story we've been told, begins to recede further and further into the background, right? God goes from splitting seas and uh, showing up in crazy thunder, cloud, fire, mountain things in the beginning of this story to having mortal men write down God's words um, on paper, the kind of paper that a king could throw into a fire and dismiss and burn. And just a couple hundred years after that, after this story that we heard, uh, this more silent in some way, this less animated in another way, uh, perhaps one could say less supernaturally involved God, is said to you have been incarnated into a baby, a little baby born into an occupied state. And so as this baby grows up to become a man, uh, the hope and expectation rises that this person will be a liberator, In the political sense, a king to restore Israel, uh, fulfill its promise as a nation above all nations. Um, But God, this time, in the form of flesh, does nothing of the sort. It felt strange to me in the last 12 days, reading and looking at all the various responses of Christians out there to the election. Those Christians I agree with, those Christians I 100% disagree with. Um, and I began to wonder if there's such a thing that I could point to as a particularly Christian response to events like this. I think it's really easy for us to overlook. We often forget this fact that Christianity is a religion born out of crisis. I don't mean crisis uh, in like the kind of West Anderson sense of people wearing nice suits Uh, complaining about how their fathers were terrible to them. Um, Which I'm not dissing, because I love Wes Anderson movies. That's, uh, I I like to wear nice things and complain about my father too. But uh, what I mean by crisis is a crisis in the way of bodily harm, of uh, the specter and and reality of torture, execution, uh, denial of freedoms, the shutting down of one's voice, loss of liberty, a sense of not having agency. And out of these kinds of circumstances Christianity came and came with a certain kind of message, the kind of message that said that power is made perfect in weakness, uh, that we should love our enemies, pray for them in fact, uh, forgive, do not judge others, but look at yourself and repent of uh, your own problems, your own shit in yourself. Um, and that in all that stuff, maybe through all that stuff, the kingdom of God is somehow present or is going to come or is near. Um, and that, this is, in, in a lot of ways, not a normal message. And uh, it's abnormal. In it, at best, it can be annoying, and at worst, it can be offensive and uh, seemingly indifferent in times like these that we face today, I think Christ, the failed political liberator, uh, seems an especially hard pill to swallow. If Christianity's message actually sits wrong with us or with you, to, with me, um, to the point of seeing Christianity as wrong or uh, demanding something that is not helpful or harmful, actually, um, or just not effective as a political strategy, um, I think that's fair. I don't think that's a strange thought to have. I often feel uh, that way, too. I thought about, as I was writing this um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, I remember him saying something uh, like this when asked about the families of uh, the Charleston church shootings, um, the families of the victims who, when they uh, saw the, the murderer, uh, talked about forgiving him, they, they said to him, we forgive you. And Ta-Nehisi Coates was asked about this in an interview. He said, I, I understand not living with hatred. I understand how that can be corrupting. I, got, I get that. I don't understand how you gunned down my wife, my mother, my father, my child, and when I see you three days later, I say that I forgive you. I don't understand that. It doesn't make it right or wrong. Forgiveness is a big part of uh, African-American Christianity. And I wasn't raised within the Christian church. I wasn't raised within any church. Forgiveness is a huge, huge part of it coming out of the civil rights movement. But I can't access that at all. Coates is famously an atheist and, um, you know, he's, he's a writer who's uh, made his name, uh, really writing poignant and necessary indictments of white supremacy in America. Uh, and so in his last book, Between the World, I mean, he, took a, he takes a certain aim at uh, Christian theology which he, when he writes, you must resist the common urge toward the comforting narrative of divine law, toward fairy tales that imply some irrepressible justice. The enslaved were not bricks in your road, and their lives were not chapters in your redemptive history. They were people turned to fuel for the American machine." I think this latter quote is a serious one, um, a necessary critique that we have to take into real consideration. It demands that we consider uh, what a narrative of divine law might, should, can look like, if it exists at all. I think, to be sure, much of the shock from this election comes from the rude awakening that we have perhaps cloaked ourselves a bit too snugly in a comforting narrative And yet as difficult as it can be to access the demands of things like love and forgiveness, um, from the cross of Jesus to those uh, loved ones, those families of those who were murdered in Charleston, um, these words still come to us. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. I'm not trying to convince anyone here who might think that such expectations make no sense or are just plain wrong. More I'm trying to say that the abnormality, I think, of Christianity's demands shouldn't be wiped out because of uh, anger, of shock, of anxiety, of fear that we face in a present and given moment. Um, These demands that Christianity has, they are laid and stark and real even more in these moments. There for us to either accept or reject. On election night, what was supposed to be for me a leisurely night of drinking Miller High Life on my couch um, and taking great pleasure in the pageantry of election night news coverage. I'm sort of a junkie with that stuff and I remember Four years ago they had this will- I am hologram talking to Wolf Blitzer. Um, and I was really looking forward to like being a little buzzed and laughing at stuff like that. Um, and what happened was it turned into a, way, a night of way too many Miller high lives, uh and rage. And eventually I felt this shame come over me, particularly as uh, news broke of the tallied evangelical Christian votes in America and uh, I had sort of left the evangelical church almost 10 years ago now, Um, and yet I felt intense shame at the idea of being Christian, and um, I remember texting Neil really like profane, (laughs) angry messages, uh, which you should delete, by the way, and I wondered to myself, honestly, how am I supposed to go on doing this work that I'm doing as a pastor or whatever. Um, You know, the progressive wing of a giant turd is still a giant (laughs) turd. So much of that that break with my old religious background, that culture and uh, that theology was actually very politically motivated and it centered on the realization that all these church leaders I had uh, so revered and idolized and believed to be faithful to uh, speaking the voice of God, um, they had failed to see that they had actually rejected God in favor of a king. They had represented uh, the divine will to be complicit in war, in the deaths of hundreds of thousands, for the sake of nationalism, for the market, so that Christ might take Christ's rightful place at the head of our country, um, that the, f- the flag of America would represent the Christian nation and be planted on uh, whatever bodies had to be there underneath. Christ failed as a political savior, but they were going to make sure that that didn't happen again. I couldn't help but read this story about the king and imagine Donald Trump sitting uh, on one of his literal golden thrones that he has. Um, It's winter time. He's hunched over the way he does before a fire. One of his sons is reading this scroll to him and as the son reads it, he takes parts of it and rips it and throws it into the fire. And he demands, he tells his son, go out and find the people who wrote this uh, so they can be arrested. These um, These are fucked up times. As much as I want to, I really don't have a good argument to, to make the case that it's gonna be okay. And despite some interpretations and perhaps what you might have heard part of what I was saying about Christianity and its message, po- Christianity I think is political by its nature. It places uh, a demand upon an individual, us, people, Um, to act socially, to seek justice, and imagine a public community that is bound by something like love. Um, But it's methodology for getting there. I think it may not be one that we immediately imagine, or feel, or think is best. And Christianity's faith is surely not in America uh, as a nation, or any of its leaders. Rather, we're asked to live out something, I think, pretty difficult, pretty different, uh, with eyes wide open. Watchful for those who conflate God with kings and campaigns with our own self-righteousness. We have to go out there and fight this fight now. But I think we actually have a very interesting moment right now which is before this fight takes on its its real life becomes its own kind of machine um, there's a moment now for us to reflect on what we expect of ourselves as we do this what we expect out of our communities what we expect out of our our faith our leaders i spent a good chunk of my preparation for this sermon reading um, this guy Dietrich bonhoeffer who if you're not familiar with it was remarkable for a lot of reasons, but um, in the 20th century, this guy, Bonhoeffer, who was a theologian and a pastor, was a leader of a church movement in, in Germany. Uh, as Nazi Germany started to happen, he denounced the Nazi party, started a church in a, a counter-movement church in the 1930s. He would go on to become part of an assassination plot to kill Hitler. Uh, he was caught for that, jailed, and then hung in a concentration camp in 1945. I thought it would be important to at least look at the witness of a Christian uh, pastor who lived directly in the face of the kind of evil that becomes uh, a reference point for what evil looks like. Um, and I found surprisingly, unsurprisingly a lot of his observations about the state of things in his time made a lot of sense for the state of things in our time. Some of these things I found were challenging in the way uh, of Jesus' teachings. For example, uh, in 1934, the Nazis just began exerting violence against people, so they had just killed a bunch of uh, political dissidents or who were actually part of the Nazi party. And so on, the next ser- on that next Sunday, Bonhoeffer preached a sermon, or a sermon called, Repent and Do Not Judge, where he said, When something terrible happens to us personally or to our family or our nation, our first question when we have recovered from the shock is, whose fault is it? Who is right? Who is wrong? Human beings are moralists through and through. They want to accuse one person and exonerate the other. They want to be the judges of what happens. And this is their way of dealing with a terrible disaster by saying that one person is right and the other wrong. Whether we are thinking of small happenings in our lives or great catastrophes like wars and revolutions, it is the same everywhere. People want What people want is to be the judge. You can imagine uh, what he thinks we ought to do instead from the title of that sermon, which again is repent and do not judge. Again, a hard, a hard message to hear, honestly, in a, in a lot of these times. Um, but I was particularly struck, and I'm going to end with this last passage, that he wrote in a, in a series of essays in 1943, this is right before he went to prison, and the little title of this section uh, is called On Optimism, or Just Optimism. There's a very real danger of our drifting into an attitude of contempt for humanity. We know quite well that we have no right to do so, and that it would lead us into the most sterile relation to our fellow human beings. The following thoughts may keep us from such a temptation. It means that we at once fall into the worst blunders of our opponents. The one who despises another will never be able to make anything of him. Nothing that we despise in the other is entirely absent from ourselves. We often expect from others more than we are willing to do ourselves. Why have we hitherto thought so uh, intemperately about people and their frailty and and temptability. We must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. The only profitable relationship to others, and especially to those who are weaker than us, is one of love, and that means the will to hold fellowship with them. God did not despise humanity, but became human for humanity's sake. I certainly don't feel strong enough myself in a lot of ways to uphold uh, some of these demands. And to the extent that we fail to do so, I think, uh, again, it's, it's not for the place of judgment, for, but for the place of grace, particularly in a community together. Um, that's sort of what we do here, right, which is try to enact these things that we think uh, these ideals of how we ought to live, my hope is that we, we do keep these things in mind, um, that Christianity as a message is not whitewashed, um, is not made to be what we want it to be in some sense, but, uh, but demands something of us. Amen.